All righty, good morning, let's get started. Open with me to Acts chapter 18, Acts 18. <laughs> you find your way to a seat and grab your Bibles. We're gonna pick up where we left off, second missionary journey, Acts chapter 18. Oh, there's so much to talk about since Christmas, apparently. All righty, we're settling down. Awesome. Acts chapter 18, we're going to pick up where we left off. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we just take a moment to quiet our hearts in your presence. We know that the Bible is God-breathed. It never had its origin in any man. And these truths are spiritually discerned, so we need the Spirit's help. So open the eyes of our understanding and we might see the wonderful things you have in your word for us that we could put them into practice and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you probably no doubt heard about the lawsuit that was filed uh, earlier this year um, in an effort to remove the words in God we trust from our money. And uh, let me just quote uh, from the article that I was reading this week. In February, the FFRF, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and 19 other plaintiffs filed suit against the US government over the motto, in God we trust, being on the national currency. The suit specifically named Secretary of the Treasury the acting director of the U.S. Mint, and director of the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. The suit charged that the motto is a religious phrase and has no place in government. Quote, the message belongs in churches, private institutions, and can be shared by missionaries, but who is the we representing if not all of us trust in a God? Now, the district judges ruled Monday that the suit must be dismissed. The courts have repeatedly found no constitutional violation in the motto's inclusion on the currency. Such lawsuits are considered without substance and do not merit adju adjudication. Wow. <laughs> in other words, Get out of here, I don't want to listen to it, right? They don't merit uh, being tried in the courts within the established legal systems. In other words, as I said, stop wasting our time. Uh, we don't exist for these kinds of picayune, petty lawsuits. But once in a while, secular courts find in favor regarding cases involving Christian interests, or at least they refuse to hear the complaints brought by hostile opponents who want to take legal action against the gospel and those who proclaim it. That's exactly what happens this morning in our text here in Acts chapter 18. The court is just not interested in hearing the case brought by unbelievers against the apostle Paul and the gospel. They tried to outlaw the gospel in the Roman Empire, but the case is tossed out. So we're gonna take a look at that. And it's a huge deal, by the way. It sets a precedent that the gospel is not illegal in the Roman Empire. And so for the next 10 years, 
the world can be evangelized unhindered by legal uh, efforts to stop it. And so it's a, it's a really big deal. We're going to take a closer look at that, the first 17 verses of chapter 18, uh, and the incident and surrounding details. Now, if you are just joining us, you'll be kind of lost. We're, we're in the middle of what's called the second missionary journey and, and telling us how Christianity and the gospel spread throughout the world, beginning with Jerusalem and then to uh, ever-increasing wider circles. And so the map displayed here will bring you up uh, to speed. Uh, the sending church was here in modern-day Syria, and Paul and, and Silas and and Timothy, and now Luke, uh, traversed across modern-day Turkey, establishing churches, the New Testament churches that you read about, like Galatia. And then uh, they cross over the Aegean Sea, and we've already been here to Philippi. This is all modern-day Greece. So everywhere we're going now, on this side, is modern-day Greece. Philippi, and then Thessalonica, and then to... Berea, and then last week it was down to Athens where Paul took the gospel to the philosophers there at Mars Hill and debated with the wisdom of those men there. Now, this morning we're going to go from Athens to a very famous city, uh, Corinth, the, of the 1st Corinthians and 2nd Corinthians fame. And so we're going to see uh, Paul the Apostle bring the gospel to Corinth where he's going to stay a year and a half and Corinth is, is going to become a happening place. When last we heard, it was last chapter and it w Paul was in Athens and he wasn't having a very successful time. Uh, the Bible says there with all the philosophers, the Epicureans, the Stoics, and they're debating Christianity and only a few people got saved. It said a few people believed and were saved. Some mocked and sneered. And the last thing we heard before now this morning's text is some put off making the decision until some more convenient time. And the Bible scholar said the way it's written really reeks of passive aggressiveness. Uh, we really don't want uh, to do to, we don't desire the gospel, and so we're just saying, listen, we'll think about it, whatever, go away, we'll, we'll hear you again. However, you don't always get a second chance, at least not hearing the Apostle Paul, because chapter 18, verse 1, says that after they said, hey, we'll hear you again, verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens. Oh, there you go. No, 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 no time to uh, hear the Apostle Paul again. Sometimes that's the way it is. We get opportunities, and if you don't take advantage of that opportunity, uh, it doesn't present itself again. We all know how true that could be. So after this, verse 1, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, a very famous couple in the New Testament, Aquila and Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Wow. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue 
trying to persuade Jews and non-Jews or Greeks when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, which is the whole area of Greece there, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So we're gonna divide the 17 verses in half. So this is part one. And if you're taking notes, I have trying to persuade. Trying to persuade from verse three. And I'm gonna just start off by saying, isn't this the mission statement for every Christian? Once we come to know the truth, our hearts are opened up, the Holy Spirit comes in, we realize we've been reconciled to God, that we're gonna escape the wrath on that final day, then we go about trying to live our lives to persuade others to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved, whether that's by the way we live our lives, by the way we share, just the way we pray. It's the overarching theme over your head and mine, if you're a believer, is persuading, persuading folks. There's a God in heaven. He made you. He loved you. He gave his only son for you, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but come to have everlasting life. In fact, interestingly, to these Corinthians, Paul will write, that is our very job. Second Corinthians chapter five puts it this way. God has committed to us Christians the message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ ambassadors who represent him as if God were making his appeal through us. We beg you on Jesus' behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Jesus who had never sinned to bear our sins so that through him we might be right with God. And so the purpose at some core level of every Christian's life is to persuade to God. There's a heaven to gain. There's a hell to avoid. God loves you. He wants to be reconciled to you. He took care of your sins. So Paul, we see from chapter to chapter, verse by verse, all this guy is doing is persuading. Whether in life, by all of his decisions, everything about this guy is, I've, I've got to persuade folks. And so thank you for that scripture. He arrives now 45 miles southwest of Athens, one day by walking or three days uh, three days by walking, rather, and one day by sea, he, he winds up in Corinth. And Corinth uh, is going to be a major center for the gospel. Two places in the Mediterranean where the gospel is going to go all over the world from. Ephesus and Corinth. And they're the two places where the Apostle Paul spends most of his time. He spends a year and a half here in Corinth and three years in Ephesus, and from those two churches, the entire world will hear the gospel. Well, Corinth, a little bit about Corinth. You know, you've heard this. It was a major port, the capital of the province there. The sea routes would cross there from east to west, and so did the roads, and so it was just a major commercial city. Uh, I have slides there, modern Corinthos, it's called. This is the city. 
You know, when you read about cities, leaders, wars, rulers, dates in the Bible, uh, secular history always confirms it. So there it is, Corinth today, and the ruins are still there. That's where the apostle Paul went and preached the gospel. Now, let me tell you, Corinth was a wild and immoral city. The word Corinthian was a bad word. So if you wanted to insult somebody and say that they were immoral, especially sexually immoral, you would call them a Corinthian. That's not good news <laughs> for the city. Man, one writer said, the city was industrious as modern day China and as wild as modern day Vegas, all right? So this is kind of, you get the picture a little bit there. It was kind of the sin city of the Mediterranean. The temple of Aphrodite, the love goddess was there. Also the Egyptian goddess Ashtoreth was worshiped there, the goddess of fertility. So I'm gonna spare you some of the graphic things that I read, but just know this, Wicked, wicked city. Very industrious. They had lots of money and lots of time to spend uh, partying. Now, interesting, Paul goes from Athens, where everybody kind of has it together, and they're all smart and well-studied, and they're going to talk about the philosophies of life, and very few people get saved. And he's going to come to Corinth, to Sin City, and he's going to have a big explosion of salvation experiences and a huge church is going to form. Why is that, do you think? Well, the world in its wisdom did not recognize God. You know, it, it really doesn't go well for anybody who thinks that they're smarter than everybody else and wiser than God. And that's what Paul found at Athens. And so when he came to a place called Corinth, he saw people who were kind of tired of being burned out by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, and he had a good response there, surprisingly, because they were lost. And they knew they were lost, not like the well-educated Athenians. Listen to what John Phillips wrote in his commentary, Exploring Acts. At Athens, the soil was poor. Intellectualism spoiled the harvest. But here at Corinth, the filth capital of the world, were many hungry hearts. There were lonely people, people disillusioned by godless pleasure-seeking and worldliness, people who had drunk from Satan's broken and poisoned wells, desperate, desperate people who were not only lost, but they knew they were lost. Sailors who were tired of getting drunk, women tired of being used and abused, the cast-offs of all the temples, successful businessmen and women whose money could buy them everything but happiness, housewives and moms struggling for a decent home life in a city as foul as Sodom. People just plain tired of the deceitfulness of sin, the empty way of life without God, they were ready for the hope and the new life that Christ brings. So there was a good response there. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter six, wow. 
from all walks of life, even all kinds of terrible, besetting, sinful behaviors, the Lord rescued these people. They had open hearts. What did Jesus tell the upstanding moral Pharisees? He said, you know what, you guys, you're so perfect on the outside and you're so proud and self-righteous. He said, you know who's getting saved before you guys? You guys know the Bible, you're synagogue people, you do good deeds. You know who's getting saved before you? The prostitutes, Jesus told them. The tax collectors who all they do, they're just greedy and defraud people and exploit people's monies. They're getting saved because they heard John the Baptist and they repented. And Jesus said, you know what? It's the sick who need a doctor. I didn't come to call the righteous people. I came to call sinners, those who recognize, hey, I'm broken. I do the things I don't want to do. Life is empty. That's who he came to save. So Paul's arrived in a perfectly needy city with a perfectly suited message. Tired of all this? (laughs) Tired of the allurement and then biting in and finding out, wow, all I get is a hook through the top of my mouth and a lot of pain. What happened with the fancy glitter and (laughs) all the promises that it was going to bring me such a thrill? You tired of that? God became a man in Christ Jesus, and he took on your sins and bled and died for you to wash you clean. You want to be saved? They were ready. They were ready. And so the message came, but he wasn't alone. Your text tells you, introduces you to a very well-known couple, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, and uh, who were Jews. They met Paul uh, because they were common uh, tent makers, Now, that's interesting. The rabbis had a phrase that even if you were going to be a rabbi, you had to learn a trade. Uh, They said, the father who does not teach his son to work teaches him to steal. So Paul the apostle knew how to weave the fabric of goat hair and make these tents. And so that's how they met. But Luke wants to tell you how Priscilla and Aquila ended up in Corinth so that they could meet Paul. Well, back in, as historians tell us and confirm the word of God. In the year 49 AD, Emperor Claudius was tired of all the squabbling about Jewish and Christians coming together and arguing. It always caused a riot because the Jew- Judaism and Christianity are so similar that it caused a lot of problems and there were uh, mobs and chaos. You know what they said? We're done with the whole thing. And they threw the Jews, Christian Jews and secular Jews out. Just, we don't want to hear the arguments, just leave. And so they kicked them out and Priscilla and Aquila, whether they were saved and causing some of the trouble or got saved when they met Paul, we know that after they're together, they are dear Christians. And so that's what happened. They're making tents together. That's awesome. Tent making then has been coined from this passage where a missionary will support themselves by working a secular job. And uh, it's very interesting that this couple will risk their lives for Paul. They will travel with him to Ephesus. Uh, They will work with him for three years there. They will host the church in their home. Um, Warren Wiersbe says of Priscilla and Aquila, 
Every pastor and missionary thank God for people with hands and hearts and homes dedicated to the work of the Lord. Now, he's making tents, right? Because uh, not that he couldn't be supported by those he was converting, because he tells them in 1 Corinthians, Dave, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 14, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Interesting, he tells that to the Corinthians where he was making tents for a lot of that time. Now, he tells them in chapter 9 why he didn't make use of the right to be supported by the church. And it says there in chapter 9 and verse 15, uh, he didn't want to hinder the gospel. Commentators say that Corinth was a place with lots of religious spiritual hucksters who would come in and, and they'd be clairvoyant or they'd be very spiritual and you'd have to pay to get that information like modern day psychics. And Paul said, this is different. I'm not asking for anything from you. I'm, I'm bringing you a message by which you will prosper, you will gain spiritually. I'm not after your money. Paul would say that to the Corinthians. But notice in verse five that when Silas and Timothy find him, he suddenly is able to stop tent making and, and give himself fully over to the work of the gospel. Do you notice that? Why? Well, it says in 1 Corinthians 11 and Philippians 4 that when Titus, when Timothy, Titus and Timothy, right? Silas. Silas. Well, Silas, Titus, it sounds pretty <laughs> Silas and Timothy find him. They bring him money from the Philippians. Do you remember Lydia? Wealthy businesswoman, do you remember the jailer and his family? They're supporting the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. And so when Silas and Timothy arrived, the Bible says in many different places, they brought funds from Lydia and the team back in Philippi. So now he doesn't have to make tents. He can give himself over fully to preaching and declaring the gospel. I just started thinking about that. Just how amazing that is. Did Lydia figure out, did she know this is the Apostle Paul you're supporting? You're going to help the Church of Corinth to exist. Not only the Church of Corinth, but the letter of the, to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians can be traced in part to Lydia and, and her giving because without that help, perhaps we would not have a 1 Corinthians and so just the amazing thing God can do when we give to him, you just have no idea. You don't know we're supporting 45, our church, orphans in East Africa. They go to a Christian school now. They hear the gospel. One person gets saved because they have the ability to go to that school. That gets traced back to somebody who enabled that to happen. Now, Oftentimes, you just think of the person right on the scene as the person doing the work, and we forget that others enabled that person to save and to heal and to help and to feed. It's like the guy you see at the bottom of a cliff, let down on the rope, and he's helping the person into the basket, and they're the hero, right? But what about the guys lowering him and holding the rope? We forget about that. So Silas, 
Timothy, bring strength and refreshment from somebody who's holding the rope for the Apostle Paul. I think when we get to heaven, God is going to, to just unfold and trace out beyond your wildest imaginations of where your giving and your service and your sacrifice went and how many lives were touched. Just, just an awesome thing. So the team's in place. He's been encouraged by the coming of his friends and the money, and now he's going to do his thing. Let the persuading begin. Anyone here want to have their sins washed away? Anybody here want to live forever? Anybody here want to experience the love of God who made heaven and earth and you'll be able to call him your father? Is there anybody I can, can convince to be reconciled to God and be resurrected to a new life and have the power of the Holy Spirit in your heart and your life? That's what he did. And where did he go? Where he always goes. There was a Jewish neighborhood in Corinth. He went to the synagogue. He says, I'm going to start with people who believe, have a working knowledge of the one true God who made heaven and earth in all the prophets that they're hearing about and a working knowledge of the scriptures. That's where he always goes. And so he went there and he proved from the, the scriptures that uh, Jesus was the Messiah. Here's just a, a little bit of some of the places Paul the Apostle would go to in the synagogue in the scriptures. A list, born of a virgin, just like Isaiah said. So he's in the, he's in the synagogue and he said, guys, he was born of, the, of a virgin, just like Isaiah was saying. He was born in Bethlehem. Here, here he is in John 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. Whoever eats of this bread shall live forever. So of course, the bread of heaven that comes down to give his life for all of us is going to be born in the house of bread, Bethlehem means house of bread. And then where is he laid? He's laid in a manger. The word in Greek is feeder. It means to eat. Eat the bread of life and live forever. And it was prophesied in Micah chapter five and verse two, 500 years before Bethlehem. He will be born in the house of bread. So this is Paul. Paul's in there just doing this talking about how it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Now, listen, it's very interesting to me. His time in Athens, his very unfruitful time, because it said a few people got saved, that's it. Very unfruitful. He comes to Corinth with a change of heart and strategy. Let me show you there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, when I came to you in Corinth, Brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom. Been there, done that. I just did that. Just came from that and got me nowhere. In fact, it gave me a headache. All right, going around and around. If a tree falls in the forest and nobody sees it, does it make a sound? You know, he was done. He was just done with that. It wasn't very, yeah. <laughs> Are you all philosophy majors or what? All right. Eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony. I resolved, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear with much trembling, not like the eloquent, self-confident philosophers of that day. He said, I got up there and I said, there's a God in heaven who died for your sins. 
He became a man through a human uh, virgin womb. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her and out came a savior who'd bear our sins and die in our place. And he said, I just wanted to tell you about Jesus, man. You can stop standing on the street corner. You can stop trying to buy your happiness with all that money. You're a sinner. God loves you. He became flesh and blood so that he could die in your place and reconcile you forever to his loving presence where you'll live forever with God. He said, that's why I came. And, and you know, it was, it, he wasn't just listing scriptures. He was saying, I used to kill Christians. I hated this whole thing. I hunted them down to foreign cities where I threw them into to prison. I gave my approval. I voted to kill them. So one transformed life set free with the scriptures, persuading, not just giving a Bible study in there. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. No way he came in there and he said, God is alive. He sent his son Jesus. He's risen from the dead and he will give life to you, everlasting life. He'll take away all your sins. All you have to do is metanaeo in the Greek. Turn. That's all he says. Turn and believe. Just turn and believe and it's all yours. He said, that's all I wanted to talk about. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And guess what? It worked. <laughs> well, Paul's encouraged through Aquila and Priscilla, the coming of Silas and Timothy, through his generous friends and love offering from Philippi. And that's where ministry success comes from, right? It's not all about the apostle Paul. It's about friends who's serving with him. They love one another. They've got each other's backs. They laid down their lives for one another. As uh, one writer said, not much could have happened in a city like Corinth if not, if not for the devotion and service of many different people. Those folks loved each other. They bore one another's burdens. And the world took note. And there was a church in Corinth. Let's continue. Second half now. Last half. But when the Jews, and there's always that but, right when things are happening, always, <laughs> but when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles, means non-Jews. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door <laughs> to the house of Titius Justus. Let's call him TJ from now on, all right? <laughs> it's a little bit easier. <laughs> a worshiper of God. That means he was open and eventually he becomes a Christian. Crispus, note this, verse eight. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Now one night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you. No one's going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed a year and a half teaching them the word of God while Gallio was pro of a... a 
Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes. Sosthenes, the new replacement for Crispus. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, got saved and moved over to TJ's house. So they got a new guy, (laughs) Sosthenes. And Sosthenes is the one bringing the lawsuit. So they turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. All right, so we're going to move from trying to persuade to trying to survive. (laughs) All right, and that's the story of the Christian life. I'm sorry, but that's it. That's what happened to Jesus. That's what happened to all the disciples. That's what happens to me and you. Always, 100% of the time. God loves you. You need to turn from the way you're living and come to him in belief. We need to persuade you to have life. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to avoid. We're persuading, persuading, persuading. Not everybody wants to hear that. And so then you're trying to survive. Like Brother Saeed. He was in Iran, Iran, trying to persuade. And they locked him up in a notoriously uh, terrible prison, the worst one there in that region. There he languishes to this day, trying to survive. Why? Because he's trying to persuade. And some people do not want to be persuaded. And we see that here again. So let's talk about that. There's a familiar pattern here. Paul preaches the gospel. Some of the Jews believe. Uh, They become Christians, and some are unbelieving and feel threatened and jealous and insecure. And sooner uh, or later, they take aggressive action. Uh, Not always, but often is the case. Uh, One writer put it this way. The reason behind aggressive intolerance to Christian truth often lies in the perceived loss of something near and dear to the unbeliever's heart. A sinful lifestyle you're going to have to give up, ill-gotten gain, you're going to make less money if you become a Christian or whatever, or you're going to lose the ability to determine your own course of life. Self-determination goes out the window when you have a Lord, right? So in this case, what's up with the Jews who are forming another riot and taking Paul and the gospel to court? What are they losing? Well, they're losing their congregation. They're losing their good standing in the, in the community, right? So here's how I picture what happened one Saturday at the Sabbath. You know, things are heating up again. And the text says they become abusive, That's not as descriptive, really, as the Greek. The Greek has blasphemeo, to become abusive. It means to blaspheme. Blaspheming is always connected to God, insulting God in a vile manner. So when they started to insult the gospel and to be vulgar with Paul and Christ, 
he, he got the message and he said, you know, that's enough. And then he does a very Jewish thing. He stands up and he, he pulls out his robes in a taut kind of way uh, and says, I'm done here. Well, back in the day, that kind of meant, I'm gonna give you what you want. You want distance. You don't wanna hear this anymore. So uh, I'm leaving and we have nothing more in common in including the dust from this place. Even the dust on my clothes is now separated from me and you. So it's not what Paul wanted. It's not what God wanted. But it's what they wanted. And sometimes God gives us what we want. And that's really the wise thing to do. Lest we take that too far, one writer put it this way. The general Christian principle is unending prayers, relentless love and openness, and forbearance and patience for the gospel's sake to anyone who needs Christ. But there are times when hearts are closed, minds are made up, that continued striving over the gospel and spiritual matters may only makes things worse. I like what Jesus said. Here's a paraphrase of it. He said, be careful not to put sacred and precious things before people who don't really value them, or else you'll find them twisting and trampling all over the sacred truth with their dirty feet. And that's not all. Then they'll turn and vent their anger on you. Now, that was a very, uh, it was a nicer way put than what Jesus said. Jesus said it a little more harshly. Now, I want you to notice something very important that I underlined in my Bible when I read this. Verse six, what does he say? He says, your blood be on your own head. Wow, what implications can be drawn from that? He's saying, it's not enough to be a good Jew. It's not enough, you're, you're not okay. Your blood is, I'm sorry, your death, your destruction in the end. Your blood be on your own head. I warned you. He's saying your good deeds, your synagogue attendance, your giving, everything about you, your kind, everybody likes you in the neighborhood, not enough. You've rejected the message. Therefore, your blood, it means your destruction, is your own responsibility. I warned you, so on that great day, nobody's gonna say, hey, this man was in relationship with me. He was in Corinth. He never opened his mouth. We worked side by side, day by day. He never said a thing. He says, oh, no, you'll never be able to say that with me. I put it out there more times than you wanted to hear it because it's important. So your blood be upon your own head. Don't buy the lie that everything's okay as long as you're a good person. That eventually God will just make everything okay because it doesn't work that way. John chapter three, verse 36. Whoever has the son, whoever believes in the son shall have life. Whoever rejects the son shall not see life for the wrath of God remains upon them. So you may be a good Jew. You may be a good Muslim. You may be a good New Age person. You may lead a better moral life than I do as a pastor. 
But without Christ and without being born again, the Bible says, if you reject Christ, it'll be your own fault. You shall not see life. That's the gospel. That's what's right before our very eyes. And so, check this out. This is kind of ironic, right? He's in the synagogue. He says, ah, I don't have to put up with this. I'm going to the Gentiles. And not very far, right next door. TJ is a Gentile. He says, hey, Paul, you want to use my house? It's not very far from here. In fact, we share an adjoining wall. It says in the Greek, adjoining walls. Paul says, yes, that sounds very nice. Who's at opening service? Paul, Silas, Timothy, TJ, and Crispus, the leader of the synagogue next door. Converts to Christ and his whole family and the household servants. Everybody who helped and lended a hand in the synagogue got saved in leadership and they come over to TJ's next door. So now on Saturday, you got a choice. <laughs> you can take three steps to the right and go to what Jesus called a tattered garment, ready for goodwill. It was a good shirt while it lasted, but you know, Christ has come and he said, now Judaism is like a tattered garment or an old stretched out wineskin. It's not good anymore. It, think of it like this. Judaism is the bulb of the daffodil. Christianity is the beautiful flower, the daffodil. Are they one and the same? You could look at the bulb and say, hey, it's a daffodil, right? Well, sort of. It is. It is, but not fully formed. Judaism is the bulb. So the bulb was three steps to the right. You know, the bulbs are not very attractive. You know, what, is the, what did the bulb say? Do this or die. That's the law. That's the Old Testament. Keep my covenants or you're dead men. What's the daffodil say? I did it for you. Come and smell the, the beauty and the new life. Come and be raised because I did it for you. I paid your debt. I lived a perfect life. You couldn't do it. And I'll raise you to life just like this daffodil. <coughs> so you got the daffodil over here. Everybody's singing and joy. They're being filled with the Holy Spirit. You've got former prostitutes. You've got former scam artists. Read the list, 1 Corinthians 6. It names them in a long list of people. It says, such were some of you. It's a long list. Adulterers fornicators, drunkards. They're all hanging out at TJ's, getting filled with the Holy Spirit, singing, having a backyard barbecue, right? And next door, it's oy vey. We still got to wait for the Messiah. He's not here yet. You know what I'm saying, sorry. That's my Jewish side coming out. <laughs> so Paul's thinking, dear Lord, it's just a matter of time. They're, they're spilling out of the windows at TJ's. Right? And there are three people dovening over there with, the, with Sosthenes, right? Paul's afraid. He goes, it's here, here. He, he says, Lord, I see a pattern here. All right? I come into town. I preach the gospel. Some people get saved and some people get mad. This is about the time when I get a really good beating. <laughs> right? 
So he's afraid. How do you know he's afraid? The Lord appears to him in a vision and says, stop being afraid. <laughs> right? So we know. We always put Paul up there on this platform somewhere like he's some alien Christian, you know, some superhero. He is sort of this wonderful, supernaturally gifted man, but he's a human being. He didn't like to get beat, right? Anybody here really like to get flogged? Five times he was flogged. He was crippled. He was crippled three times beaten with rods. Five times flogged. That's crazy. And so the Lord has to appear to him. And here's the paraphrase of his vision. He says, stop being afraid. I'm with you. I love it in the world where they say, hey, chin up, cheer up. It's going to be okay. Hey, I've got my fingers crossed for you. There's no basis for you telling me to be cheered up or to have encouragement. God doesn't do that. He gives you a basis for the hope. So what does he say, Paul? And in the Greek, it says, stop being afraid. I'm with you. Yeah, the God who made heaven and earth, is there anything to fear if I'm with you? I can promise you this. No attack is going to ultimately harm you in this city. And then he says, I've got many people here. You don't even know. I've got people all over the city who need me, are ripe, and they're going to come to know me and have eternal life. I need you to help me. Do not stop speaking. He was, going, he was afraid, and he was going to quit. Because God says, don't be afraid, and do not quit. Oh, man. God just does that, whoever you are. When you're, when you're God called, when you have the Holy Spirit, and, God, and you're doing what you believe to be, to the best of your knowledge, God's will, this is God's promise to you too. Stop being afraid. I am with you. Yeah, you should be quiet and think about that. Paul knew that in his head, but sometimes, you know, that 18 inches or whatever, however far it is, depending how tall you are, it's a long way to your heart. He says, I'm with you. You know, even in blessing, you know, TJ's house is the place in town for changed lives and the gospel, right? He's got great blessing, but he's afraid. That's ha that happens with great blessing. You know, what, what if I mess this up? Who am I to be doing this? What if so-and-so does this? What if, what if such and such? Stop being afraid. I'm with you. Keep speaking. I got a lot of people depending. Come on. Nothing's going to attack you and stop you. I promise. So let's do this. That's what he says to Paul. So Paul says, fine. I'm going to be here for a year and a half. It was natural for Paul to fear but very unnecessary. In short, you're where I want you to be, man. No one's going to drive you out of there. So he stays for a year and a half. Now, uh, this is where God does great things. There's always a diabolical pushback, always. Just expect it. When God's blessing, there's always a pushback. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, it's not about the people who bring the lawsuit or the trouble. It's about the spirit behind it. 
the diabolical spirit behind it that really you need to take note of. And so that's what's going on here uh, when they haul him into court. Here's what the Bible says. A united attack from the Jews next door. Uh, United attack is, in English, pretty weak, again. In the Greek, murderous insurrection. Yeah, they weren't happy. All right, so they bring a lawsuit, right? So the litigants are Sosthenes, the new ruler of the synagogue, and the Jews, right? The leaders there. And uh, they're the plaintiffs, right? And uh, here's the charge. The guy is persuading people to worship God in illegal ways. Here's what they were saying, and it's a very important law- lawsuit. They're saying Judaism is a religio lacita in the Latin. It is an accepted, approved religion by Rome. Judaism is. And what they're telling Gallio is, this stuff, even though he's a Jew, he's bringing this Messiah, Jesus stuff, that's illegal. That's not covered. That's a religio illicita, an illegal religion. And what is Gallio? Now, Gallio could have said right then and there, you're right. This gospel nonsense, it's illegal. He could have said that it would have been precedent throughout the Roman world. Illegal, the gospel. But what does he say? Here's a paraphrase. Are you kidding me, you Jews? All right, if this guy were a criminal having done something serious or even some minor infraction of the law, I'd be all ears. But since it has to do with titles and words and interpretations of your Jewish religion, please settle this yourselves. In other words, leave the guy alone. I want nothing to do with this. It's not a matter for the courts. He's broken no laws. Go away. Bailiffs, escort them out of here. Huh. It's not so much that he was pro-Christian or pro-Paul. He was anti-Jew. All right? So that, and, and what proves that is that the crowd turns on the prosecuting Jew, Sosthenes, and beat him, and he turns a blind eye. That'll teach you Jews to tie up my valuable time with your Jewish controversies about Messiah and Christ and all of that. God used his displeasure with the Jews to protect and defend uh, Christianity. Pretty amazing thing. Now, we breathe a sigh of relief because Paul and his companions are able to spread the gospel pretty much now for 10 years uh, because the gospel is legit. It's not illegal. And of course, the gospel, by the way, is illegal in about 20 countries. It's illegal. (laughs) They're bringing suit against God. You know what? When you do that, you're just not going to win. Amen? (laughs) God always wins. That's it. That's just the way he is. So there's a judgment against Paul, uh, not against Paul, uh, but against the Jews in certain. Now Sosthenes, love it. He gets a beating. He's the one against Paul and the gospel. Something happens to the beating, and he becomes a Christian. Maybe he identifies with the beaten, broken body of Paul. 
his Jewish Christian friend now. How do we know he becomes a Christian? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and my bro Sosthenes. <laughs> Come on. He addresses the church at Corinth by saying, this letter is from the apostle Paul and my brother Sosthenes who's sitting right here by me. It's from both of us. Wow. Do you know what Proverbs chapter 20 verse 30 says? And it's, it's not one that you hang on your refrigerator, but it says, blows and wounds scrub away evil and beatings purge the inmost being. How many of you want that in your promise box? <laughs> oh, praise the Lord. Oh, it's so encouraged today. <laughs> Listen. It's true. Through adversity, there's something very sobering about it. You know what? It wakes you up. It, makes, it gets you off the wrong path. You, you, you come to your senses and realize, what am I doing? This is harming me. I'm going to turn from this behavior because of the adversity that's upon me. And that's the meaning of the text, is that through hardship and trouble, often brought on by our own foolishness, it purges away the dumb things that we do to get us in that trouble to begin with. And so that's what happened to Sosthenes. He got a beating, but it was a good beating. He didn't think so at the time, but the Lord used it. So here we have two former persecutors of the church writing 1 Corinthians. One who used to kill Christians, one who just litigated against them, and now they're both saying, we love the Lord. Come and know him like we know him. What? You both hated Christians. Yeah. Look what God has done. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel that came to Corinth changed lives, transformed people. That's the whole point. It doesn't get any better than that. You know, for me, the takeaway all the hardship, all the effort that goes about Christian living is in the line. I've got many people in this city. He's saying, you need to continue because there are people yet unreached, but I know who they are. And I need you to be co-laboring with me to reach them. No matter what, I've got many people in this city. The Lord is saying, you don't recognize them here in Sonoma County because they're not acting like Christians right now. But they belong to me and I want you to go get them. So we pray, we love, we shine the light, we persuade, we give out books, we give out tracts. We try to persuade. And then we leave the matters to God. Now, let me close with a story that I've told before. I want to tell it again. My sister, who it happened to some 30 years ago, is visiting today, and uh, that's what made me think about it. But it's in regarding the judge on that great day who will, 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 will decide in our favor if we've come to know his son in this life. All right? And so... 
30 years ago, my sister was 18. She had uh, a young little baby. She was a single mom, pretty destitute, pretty hard life. Uh, she got a fix-it ticket, and she let it go for a long time. And as you know, that's an investment. <laughs> <laughs> there was a huge fine, and she got a failure to appear. The police showed up at her door, and they agreed not to take her because they saw she had a baby. She's a single mom. She's just a kid. And they said, well, you've got to come in in the morning and get this right. And she was like, yes, sir, I will. Little did she know, coming in to get it right meant she was arrested, taken into custody, uh, booked, and put behind bars while her little son was being babysat somewhere. Well, she called somebody, a friend, a family friend, who posted bail for her. And so she got out with the agreement that she would go to court and handle the big fines, huge fines, and take care of it. On her way to the court, she was riding the bus. She got a diaper bag and her crying baby and all the court papers. She sat down next to a man, and she just spilled out the whole story to him. What do you think I should do? Oh, I'm on my way to the court. I had to fix a ticket. I got thrown into jail. Oh, there's a huge fine. There's a huge fine and all of this. So the guy listened to her and said, listen, just tell the judge what you just told me. It'll be fine. So they get off there, and she gets into court. She's in the courtroom. The bailiff says, all rise. She stands up and through the door, comes the guy from the bus. <laughs> My sister's mouth. I called her this morning, by the way, and I said, Jody, you're coming. I'm thinking of this story. Do I have it all right? And I ought to write. <laughs> her mouth open. She gets called. She stands up. She's trying to talk. And he says, you know, I've got the details on this. I've heard this story. Case dismissed. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful story. I've kept that in the back of my mind for years because I think of the ultimate judge. We're on the way. Everybody's on the way. It says, while you're on the way to the courthouse, reconcile with the son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, it says in Psalm chapter 2. And then when you appear before him, you know you're not going to have to say much because he's going to say, hey, whoa, I know this story. I got this story. We talk all about it. Remember? Case dismissed. Enter into the joy of the Lord. You know, listen, your court case, whatever it is, it doesn't always have to go in this life the way you think it's supposed to go because if you're a Christian doing God's will, I promise you, a bad decision against you is a vote for you. You just don't realize it yet. Romans 8.28, I will take everything and knit it together for your good to those who love me and call according to my purpose. That's the deal. So don't think, well, why does that ever happen to me? It has happened to you. It happens to you all the time, but you're just interpreting it wrong. You're not interpreting with faith, with faith. Every time the apostle Paul got hauled in and whipped, was he thinking, where are you now? 
He's not thinking that. He's thinking, you're working. You're working. He said in, in, to the Corinthians, because of who I am, the great revelation that God has given me, with that came great adversity, that my suffering is to help me in my great revelation from God, to keep me humble, to keep me dependent. So even those terrible things that come about have redemptive purposes. And ultimately, that judgment, oh man, the judge is your father. He loves you. And he says to you this morning, stop being afraid. I'm with you. Keep serving. Keep speaking. You're in the right place. Don't give up. I've got many people around in need. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love, the promise of your word, your great grace and mercy that covers us. Help us, Lord, to ever be persuading and, Lord, to trust our lives after that to your care because you're able to keep us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Closing song. Well, uh, as a reaction to last week, when I really didn't give the altar call, I just said, this is how you could get right with God. And the poor guy had to come up <laughs> to the platform, you know, just to make sure that he could uh, become a Christian. I want to not force you into that situation. I want to just right where you're standing. If your heart's been stirred and you find yourself I, I want this Jesus. I want this God. I want this new life. You haven't had it before. But, uh, the Lord just kind of opened your eyes and brought people into your life. And you're here. And you're open. And you want to know. Today, this day, I give my heart over to be reconciled with Christ. Why don't we bow our heads, close our eyes. See if there's somebody here would just raise your hand and just say, include me in your closing prayer. Today's my day. I'm going to become a Christian today. I want this, Jesus. Thank you. One couple hands. Anybody else want to say this is the Sunday I'm going to officially become a Christian? All right. Of course, you don't need to raise your hand. You just need to believe in your heart. Let's say this prayer. The Bible says if you Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he's alive, raised from the grave, you shall be saved. Dear Heavenly Father, today I open my heart to you. I confess Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that he's alive. Please save me. Make me right with you. Give me a new life. And help me to walk with you in love. All the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. And now, Heavenly Father, for those who needed a word of encouragement to stop being afraid because you're with us, to keep doing and living for you, speaking and serving. Because there are people who are in need. Help us, Lord, 
to find them, to reach them, and to, to be confident and emboldened by your word to us in our hearts this day. Help us remember it, not only today, but in the moment that we most need it <laughs> in the future days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. There's prayer at the cross. And also, don't forget, Wednesday night is New Year's, so no service. We'll see you next Sunday. God bless you.